I want to hand out a, um, a, a copy of the passage for today. Um, and it, it reflects um, my own understanding of some of the issues relating to the text. So I'm going to pass it around from table to table. And you already have a sermon outline in your, in your bulletin. So this is a separate thing. You're getting a two-for-one deal today. Just give me a sec to hand things out. All right, you're saying to yourselves, we just read this. And I say, I know. But uh, what could be more useful if we're preaching the text than to have it said more than once? So um, I have some notes here, and I'm not going to read you the footnotes. Those of you who were suspecting that I might at previous incarnation have been a seminary professor, you're right. I'm not hiding that very well. But um, I want us to say the text together. Um, yeah, no, I got, yeah, sure, Logan. Anybody else need one? Got lots extra, okay. All right. And I invite you to say the parts that are in bold. And it's a little bit different. It's meant to jog your, your, um, your, your minds for your, those who are being used to one translation or another. In your praying, don't repetitiously ramble like the Gentiles. For they suppose that they will be heard for their prattling verbiage. Therefore, don't be like them. For your father knows of what you have need prior to your asking him. In this way, therefore, pray ye. And then join me with the, um, the, um, the bold parts. And I'm, this is very literal. Our Father, the one in the heavens, let it be sanctified your name. Let it come your kingdom. Let it happen your will. As in heaven, so on earth. Our needful amount of bread give us today. Oh, sorry, our needful amount of bread, then you. <laughs> you take it. And forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us be led into temptation. Rather, snatch us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. For if you forgive people their mistakes, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And if you don't forgive others, then neither will your Father forgive you for your mistakes. As Matt has already said, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now on the other side of uh, that handout are a set of questions which you might want to sort of use over the course of the week just to remind yourself of the, um, of, of the, uh, the content of the passage. It just asks you some funny or some fun teasing questions about the text. So now turn with me, if you will, to the outline. It's called the Disciples Contrastive Prayer, Matthew 5, 7 to 13. Two things different about the title. I remember hearing a sermon once that claimed this was not the Lord's Prayer, this was the Disciples' Prayer. It was a prayer that Jesus taught the disciples for them to pray. So it's more aptly called the Disciples' Prayer than it is the Lord's Prayer. And it is a contrastive prayer. We see the contrast in uh, the introduction that you can see is outlined in the structure of the text. The introduction 
ties the beginning of the passage with the other uh, hypocritical things that people have been doing. There are people who are giving, there are people who are praying, there are people who are fasting for show or for some other hypocritical reason. And Jesus says, don't be like them, but. And in this case, what he's focusing on is not the where of the praying, where you should pray, as was read by Matt before, and which I preached on a few weeks ago. But in this case, it has to do with what to pray. And more specifically, even how much to pray. And so in the beginning, we're told uh, that uh, there's a contrast between the way that Jesus wants his disciples to pray and the way that other people pray. And as you see from the text, when you look at it, they repetitiously ramble and they suppose that they will be heard for their prattling verbiage. This isn't just a matter of wordiness, although wordy it was. The contrast lies in the nature of God more than with the number of words. You see, for the Gentiles, uh, the Romans, for example, they had any number of different gods and they didn't particularly care about you. So you had to get their attention. And if you couldn't get one God's attention, you'd try to get another God's attention to help you with whatever problem you had. So it was kind of like this, this battle to get the God's attention and to get them to care. And so you would go through all kinds of different motions in order to, to win their favor and to get their attention. Uh, not like that with God. I remember uh, many years ago when I was living in this building with our young children, um, a famous movie star came and, um, and uh, shot a film here. And for those of you who are over, I don't know, 45 or 50, you might remember Kirstie Alley in the, the show Cheers. Um, anyway, Kirstie Alley was this beautiful movie star, and uh, she was in the building, and I wanted to find an excuse to meet her. But of course, I had never met her before. She's this famous person come from Los Angeles who's got better things to do than meet me. So I, I, I used a, a, a baby kid to manipulate her. I thought, <clears throat> she's taking a break from her shot in the West Lecture Room. So if I can just happen to wander by with this cute little baby boy, you know, uh, a little toehead with, with, with flashing blonde hair, maybe even sort of pretend like I'm tired of holding the child, try to get her attention that I did. And you know what? It worked. I got Kirstie Alley. I got to meet her because I basically manipulated my way into the whole situation. Well, I think Jesus is saying the same thing here that, um, you know, your God is not unfamiliar to you. Um, this is your God. And in fact, this God, as we go on to learn, is our Father. So it's not a matter of many words. Uh, in fact, um, if, if, uh, if I had to manipulate uh, Kirstie Alley into meeting me by introducing her to my baby, Imagine how much effort, by comparison, it would take for my mother to pay attention to her baby grandson. I mean, you know, you walk through the door and she just says, give me that kid, uh, because this is grandma. And you don't need any kind of long, you know, would you please take my child? His name is David, and he's a cute little guy. I mean, it's grandma. So grandma wants the baby. And this is, in effect, I think, what Jesus is saying. He says, you don't have to be like them. For your father, your father knows of what you have need prior to your asking him. So it's a whole different ballgame. You're in the family. He knows. He cares. He's your father. 
And two things are important here. The familial relationship, father and his power. And so the text goes on and it says, this is how you should pray. And here's the summary of the one that we're talking to. Our father, the one in the heavens. Our father, the one in the heavens. Now that word father was used by Jewish people. There's a bit of a debate about this, but you can turn in the Old Testament and realize that Jewish people sometimes did call God their father. But this was a specialty of Jesus. Jesus uh, highlighted this and characterized this and taught his disciples, you and me, to call him father. And you know, father is an important word, but it's, it's kind of like a code word. Uh, you show me a couple that have been married and I will bet you that they have a special term for each other that they don't use of anybody else. Probably the most common one is sweetheart, right? Like I call my wife sweetheart all the time. If I were to call anybody else sweetheart, uh, I, I, I don't know, I'd probably get disciplined by the bishop or somebody for being fresh, right? But there's this special relationship that just goes with the fact that this is somebody that you use this term for. And so Jesus teaches us to use this term father. And in Aramaic, as you probably heard, it's the word Abba. And this is kind of a private theory. There's no real evidence for it, but I still believe it's true. If you've listened to a baby, one of the first things that the baby is inclined to say, at least before he can even talk, one of the things that they might say is Abba. And the egotistical father, of course, thinks, well, he's talking to me, right? I mean, this is the name. He's calling his, calling his dad. And so um, imagine yourself It's, uh, which had that beginning maybe, has now become a formal word for father. And it describes not just the relationship that we have with God as father, but it's much more profound than that. I mean, it is true. Jesus teaches us that God is our father. But it's Jesus who teaches us that God is our father. And who is Jesus? Jesus is the son of the father in a way that none of his sons or daughters are sons of the father. So there's a Trinitarian connection that comes in here as well as a familial one. Um, this is a Trinitarian statement. Jesus is inviting us to call his father. The eternally begotten son of God from the before the foundation of the world is inviting us to take part in his sonly relationship with the father. So this is kind of like uh, father with a super capital F. It's all in caps. Father, the father, as taught to us by the heavenly, uh, as taught to us by the incarnate son of God, the eternal son of God, who has eternally been begotten from the father. And of course, whenever we pray, we pray in the Holy Spirit, which isn't mentioned. So this is an incredibly uh, Trinitarian and familial statement. Um, then there's that little word, our. It's easy to overlook, but in our individualistic culture, it ought not to be forgotten. This is not a prayer where I say, my father, my bread, forgive my sins, but it's our father, our daily bread, our transgressions. I think I've said it before, even in this congregation, the few years that I've been with you, maybe in an occasional sermon a few years ago, but. Gordon Fee used to like to surprise his students at Regent College. He was a Pentecostal uh, pastor originally, 
And uh, he said, Jesus did not come and die for your sins. He came to make a covenant people. And uh, this whole idea that, that Jesus and you, it's true, we come into the kingdom as individuals, and it's important that we individually accept Christ. But this is why, folks, we're a church. This is why we do the Sunday thing. And this is why, when God wills it, we'll do the Sunday thing in person. It's because we're a community. God has created us as a people. So the people that you like at church are part of that community. The people that you might not want to hang around with so much at church are part of the community. And our Father is also the one who is in the heavens. Now, I've already said that that indicates that he is one who is all-powerful. I mean, if, if you had a father who couldn't do anything to help you, it would be nice, but it, it, it wouldn't be very effective, would it? But this is the Father who is in the heavens, and the word is plural. And in the ancient world, they thought of the heavens having multiple levels. Multiple levels. So God is the Father in the furthest, highest of the heavens, but if he's the God of the highest of the heavens, he's also the God in the most accessible of the heavens. And so it's, it's like thinking that, as you see in those movies when Jesus prays, you know, you, you lift up your hands as though you can almost touch heaven. And you pray, you know, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam, ha'motzi lechem min ha'aretz. I mean, you're, you're, you're just able to, to extend your hands I did this in practice last night and it was as though I couldn't let them down. It's just like you feel connected to this God who is there. I mean, he's, he's accessible, he's sovereign, but he's also accessible. And that sets the tone for the six petitions that follow. Look at them as they are outlined in the structure. There are three that have to do with God. One, two, three then four, five, and six have to do with ourselves and our relationships with others. And this intentionally reflects the two commandments that were given. What are we to do? First of all, we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and might. God's priorities, God's being, God's, God's person comes first. And then we love our neighbors as ourselves. In the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments focus on our behavior towards God initially and then focus upon our relationships with others secondarily. Now, if you want a contrast, I can't imagine a greater one than that with the pagans in this regard, because if somebody um, doesn't have a covenant relationship with God and they don't pray very often, when do they pray? Uh, they pray when they are in desperate need. Uh, you may have heard a story about a, a, a guy who was, um, he, he, he almost fell over a cliff, and at the last moment he grabbed a vine, and he was hanging over the edge of the cliff with this, with this vine. And um, it was the only thing that was keeping him from falling hundreds of feet to the ground. And so um, he said, um, um, anybody up there to, to help me? And God said, uh, yes, here I am. He said, help me, God. And he said, um, God said, let go of the vine and I'll help you. Anybody else up there that might be able to help me? It's this idea that, you know, you're in trouble. You want somebody to be there. Um, but this is all the way around. In this prayer, Jesus teaches us what his preoccupation was, and that is, is with the being and the will and the purposes of God. And so they're cast in ways that I have tried to reflect in the translation. Um, it is uh, three kind of imperatives. May it be hallowed, your name. May it come, your kingdom. May it be, thy will. 
Now we're doing the prayer, but look specifically at who's doing the action. We're asking God to let God's name be hallowed. We're asking God to let his kingdom come. We're asking God to let his will be done. You see, the focus is so, is so much upon God that, that our role is, is, is negligible. And that's the way it should be, right? Someone once taught a course at college which received some criticisms from uh, the theologians. It was called Forging the Kingdom. And it was as though, you know, we are forging the kingdom. And there's, a, there's an apt analogy that goes with that, I suppose. But the whole idea is that we don't forge the kingdom. The kingdom is brought into our midst. And I suspect this is one of the reasons why you like coming to church and why you like Christ the King Church. Um, you, you, you see it on people who know Jesus. They're not trying to be godly. They're not, they're not trying to represent the kingdom. Somehow you just have a sense that they've had an experience with the living God and that God has touched them and that gives you peace. So we are to pray similarly that God's name would be hallowed, that his will would be done, and that his kingdom would come. It's saying, God, just the way that you have your way in that sinless realm of heaven before sin ever touched us, we want that to prevail on earth. And so the church at its best, at its very best in ideal situations is a reflection of that. And that's part of the kingdom that we are excited about sharing with other people, right? It's this just amazing place. I had a friend who I've lost touch with mostly, but um, he was a, a troubled soul. Uh, and I, I felt quite badly for him. Uh, but he used to like to come to church with us. And I don't know that his theological interest at that point was very rich. It's become more rich since, since then. But he just said, you know, I don't know why. I just like being here. I just feel as so safe here, so at peace here. And so that is our prayer, that God would allow his name to be hallowed, that his kingdom would come, and that his will would be done. Let me draw attention for a moment to hallowed. Because it's become more and more common in our culture to associate the word God with damnation. Or some people even think that it's almost kind of pious just to throw God's name around. But this word for hallow, as you probably know, is one that involves being set apart. It's one that involves uh, a great sense of difference and distinction. Uh, it's one that involves respect. It's one that involves uh, distinction, honor, value. Uh, I was reminded a little bit of um, that Royal Dalton figurine or something that your aunt may have given you that's supposed to be worth like $300 or something. Do you, do you, do you leave it on the floor in the kitchen where the, the, you know, the dog is gonna run into it or somebody's gonna, no, what you do is you, you, you dust it and you, you set it in a cabinet behind a glass on an upper shelf where, where no one is going to be able to get at it and reach it. And it is, it's hallowed. It's, it's set apart. I have some Friar Tuck figurines like that that I collect. And one of you drank from them this week. And as I was thinking about how I like to set them apart in a certain cabinet, my wife doesn't like them. So she likes to set them apart in a different sense, you know, put them in a box and have me put them up in the attic. But there's this idea that it's separate. And that's how we're to think of God. God is separate from us. And it's a good thing because he's sinless. And uh, would that God's name would be hallowed in 
our world, in our lives, and in our nation. So it's, it's, this, it's this petition for God's will to be done. So coming soon to earth, the perfect heavenly being realm and will of God. Interestingly, I had never read this before, and it's one of the many things I learned this week, but that as in, her, on, as in heaven, so on earth, at the end of verse 10, many people think applies to all three phrases. Uh, um, uh, Hallowed be thy name, as in heaven, so on earth. Let your kingdom come, as in heaven, so on earth. Let it happen your will, as in heaven, so on earth. Um, so there's this desire for what God wills in the perfect sinless world where he prevails to take place and to happen and unfold here to God's glory. I want to pass over our needful amount of bread. I just want to draw your attention to the fact that there's a bit of controversy over the word daily. Um, and it probably means something like needful amount, although we don't really know because it doesn't occur anywhere else. And while we're talking about changes and omissions, I should also draw your attention to the translation where I put, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever in brackets. I want you to listen carefully for a minute because this is at first unsettling, but in the second instance, assuring. New Testament scholars have so many manuscripts of the New Testament uh, dating right back to the early centuries of the church that they know pretty much exactly what the original manuscripts said. And so we have an embarrassment of riches, and that embarrassment of riches is the good news. But the bad news is that sometimes there's a, a statement that we find in our King James translations that we always thought was there and was credible and was early, which in retrospect is no longer regarded to be such. And so most scholars opine that um, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever, was literally said in bold by a congregation after the Lord's Prayer was said. So it was appropriate that we say it, as we did. It's still appropriate that we say it. But if somebody comes along and says, well, don't you know Jesus never really said that? Well, in this case, you could say, yeah, and I know there's a case for that, but we can thank God that we have so many manuscripts that we know exactly what the Bible says. And I like to think of it as having 105% of the New Testament. Okay, there's nothing, there's nothing missing here. We have a surplus. So this might be, surprise, surprise, part of the 105% of the Bible that we have. Um, so um, it's important to be aware of that and to be mindful of these things. Okay, I want to uh, focus now on petition number six because uh, it is um, it's, uh, something that I wrestled with for a long time. You see... Um, it says, the way I've translated it, it says, and don't let us be led into temptation, rather snatch us from the evil one. And you want to think, well, wait a minute, I thought, well, let me, let me just back up and say that the word for temptation is also the word for test, okay? So there's kind of a double-sided dimension to this word. It's, it, it's a word called um, parasmos, which means that you can put somebody to the test for their good, for their strengthening but you can tempt somebody for their ill. And so most people translate this and do not lead us uh, into a time of testing. God, don't lead us into a time where sort of, um, you know, we're, we're, we're put through the paces. And you think, well, wait a minute, I thought that was good for us. But actually Jesus here, and there's no real way around it, is saying you should pray 
that you're not even led into a time of testing. Uh, the stakes are too high. God might use it to test you, and it would be good, but the test is close enough to the temptation that the devil is smart and we are weak so that it can end up costing you too much. So we're actually supposed to pray, Lord, don't lead us into testing, but snatch us away from evil or the evil one. And I think that this is kind of a reminder, and I put it in the, in the outline, as a reminder to the spiritually confident. You know, some of us, they, they think we've been Christians for a long time, you know, those other people have to watch out, but you got a trial for me, God, bring it on, I can, I can handle it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm confident. It reminds you a little bit about what uh, James and John said to Jesus. Um, Jesus turned to them and said, are you, are you really able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Oh, yeah, yeah, we, we got this, Lord, we're good. And he just says, oh, pray you be not led into temptation. You know, what's interesting about this is that I think the reason why Jesus was so negative about this was that he had experienced temptation himself. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit. Now, that's not devotionally led. That means Jesus was dragged by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. And in that case, it was a time of testing. It was boot camp for the cross, as I mentioned in a previous sermon. Because there Satan was trying to undo Jesus, but Jesus was being all the more prepared for the cross. So, for example, Satan took him onto a high pinnacle of the temple, the place where people are sacrificed, and said, you know, you're the son of God, why don't you come down from there? Uh, come on down. And Jesus said, I won't do it. And of course, later when he was hanging on the cross, people said, if you're the son of God, why don't you come down from that cross? You can do it. And Jesus thought, I have been trained by the Holy Spirit for this experience already, to resist the temptation as a human being, to exercise my, hum my superhuman powers. Jesus, as the incarnate Son of God, who experienced trials and temptations, is saying to us, I don't know, guys, um, I made it, but I, I don't want you to try it. So if God does put you into a situation of trial, know that if God brought you there, he's trying to do it for good. Don't pray for those experiences, because they're dangerous. But if you do find yourself in a situation where God is putting you to the test, then say, God, at the same time that I've been led into this situation, I want you to be there to snatch me away from the wiles of the devil. Because um, we, my friends, are like dry tinder. And uh, the devil is good at throwing flames. And consider yourself a strong Christian or not. We are combustible material. And Jesus knows that well enough to say, don't even pray for that. So here this, here this prayer ends off by, uh, with the word, the evil one. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why the church was, quickly to, was quick to say, well, that's kind of a, a, a down way to end a prayer. We start with God and end with the devil. So let's say, uh, for thine be the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen, which is appropriate. But Jesus himself did not leave the devil to have the last word, because in the elaboration in verses 14 to 15, Jesus picks up on a petition that we haven't had yet. Um, we've had it, but I haven't said anything about it. And that is, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
or as I have uh, translated it, uh, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Well, there's a reciprocal relationship here between our forgiving and God's forgiving us. Um, and that's a bit of a challenge. You'll see that I have it highlighted under elaboration point three. The problem is if God's forgiveness is dependent on our forgiving others, then I'm forgiven by God on the basis of how well I do when I forgive others, right? And so this gets in the way of the whole idea that our salvation is by grace, that God's forgiveness is by grace. And so um, a good New Testament commentator on the Sermon on the Mount has explained the logic of Jesus more fully in what I have in a footnote on the, on the outline. And uh, the print is rather small, but it comes from um, the parable that Jesus gives in Matthew 18, verses 23 to 35. Uh, and let me just read that for you because it's, it's relevant. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, and then Jesus goes on to tell the parable, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. The contrast here is critical, 10,000 talents. But since he didn't have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had, and that repayment be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him, and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Just been forgiven 10,000. He finds somebody who owes him a hundred. And he seized him, and he began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Well, then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave! And here comes the part where it's closest to our text. I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I have mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And then comes a warning. And this is meant as a warning in the Lord's Prayer, the elaboration of the Lord's Prayer as well. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Dear friends, this is an incredible challenge. As one scholar has said, and the print didn't come out very well in the printout of the PDF, but he says, forgiveness is reciprocal. It's the way kingdom living works. Those who genuinely love others forgive. Those who don't are not kingdom people. Dallas Willard even adds, if you don't forgive other people after you've been forgiven, 
not only are you not a kingdom person, you don't have the foggiest idea what true forgiveness really means. You know what I found especially helpful about this? Because I know there are people who struggle with forgiveness. And you might not find this helpful, but I do. The problem with forgiving people is not so much the person, but it's the thing they did. This text doesn't say, forgive the thing they did, but it says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So you might find it helpful to think about the human element. You know, it's hard to forgive what somebody did to me, but it was a somebody who did that to me. It was somebody who must have had shortcomings in the same way that I have shortcomings. And again, God wants us to get the comparison. I mean, God has forgiven us so much. The eternal God who deserves everything and who, who, who deserves none of the bad stuff we throw at him because he's honorable, he's set apart, he's eternal, he's heavenly. We have um, defied him. We have snubbed our noses at him. Well, if he forgives us for a cosmic transgression, Jesus wants us to say, you're not going to get away without forgiving a human-to-human -human transgression. This is something, my friends, that we need grace for. Let me bring it a little bit further home by quoting something that comes from Dallas Willard. He thinks that somehow we are too honorable in this forgiving thing. Well, you made a little slip up, so I forgive you. Well, we all make our mistakes. Never mind. I'm a compassionate person. I forgive you. Um, there's kind of a nobility here that, uh, that, that Willard says is, is missing from the whole picture. And he likes to translate the language here as pity. Willard says, I have used the word pity throughout much of this discussion of forgive our, our sins, rather than the word mercy or even more dignified compassion. This is because only pity reaches to the heart of our condition. The word pity makes us wince as mercy does not. Our current language has robbed mercy of its deep traditional meaning, which is practically the same as pity. Now to pity somebody is to feel sorry for them, and that is regarded as demeaning, whereas to have mercy now is thought to be slightly noble, just give them a break. He continues, today even many Christians read and say, forgive us our trespasses and forgive me as, as though it was give me a break. And he says, in the typically late 20th century manner, the day that he was writing, this saves the ego and its egotism. I'm not a sinner, I just need a break. But no, friends, I need more than a break. I need pity because of who I am. If my pride is untouched when I pray for forgiveness, I have not prayed for forgiveness. I don't even understand it. In the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, he continues, Jesus teaches us to ask for pity with reference to our wrongdoings. Without it, life is hopeless. And with it comes the gift of pity as an atmosphere in which we can then live. To live in this atmosphere is to be able simply to drop the many personal issues that make human life miserable. And with a clarity of mind that comes only from not protecting my pride. In order that we may work for the good things all around us that we always can realize in cooperation with the hand of God. That's a big challenge. And my friends, 
if we hold grudges and don't forgive one another. It's that serious. I mean, I can't change the wording. He says, I won't forgive you either. Do we know what forgiveness means? We need God's help to make sure that happens. I want to conclude with a few summaries of the uh, message of the Lord's Prayer. There's one by Scott McKnight that I like, and it, again, it reads a little bit long, but um, I just want to share it with you. And it's a summary of this Lord's Prayer that we've been considering this afternoon. He said, the Lord's Prayer reorders our desires. We learn in the recitation, memorization, and repetition of this prayer. These are things that we're actually told in Luke to do. It's to, it's, it's to recite this. And in the early Christian teaching called the Didache, we're told to do it three times a day. I always thought it was kind of bad that we recite the Lord's Prayer over and over again. But actually, that's what we're supposed to do. It's, it's kind of like to be a mantra, to put us in this kingdom mentality. So he says, when we learn in the recitation, memorization, and repetition of this prayer to yearn for God's glory and for God's name to be held in highest honor, and we learn to long for God's kingdom, not ours, and for God's will, not ours, to be done, then we learn to yearn and ache also for the good of others. There's a perspective that's provided. We yearn that each person will have sufficient food, that each person will find reconciliation with God through forgiveness of sins, and that each person will be protected and preserved by God's grace from the snares of temptations and the grasps of evil and the evil one. And when we're done, when we're done praying this, reciting it, memorizing it, we have been reordered to God and to others, as in having those desires we find ourselves as God made us to be. Beings designed to have proper loves, that is love for God and love for others. Lord, teach us in this way to pray. Amen.